Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Friday, July 14th, and we're wrapping up Never Will I Ever Week. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined in the studio by my good friend and Fool.com Bureau Chief, Michael Douglas. Michael, how's it going? Uh, it's fantastic. It's Friday. Everyone's looking forward to the weekend, and uh, we are going to be having chicken for lunch. Chicken. Not just chicken. Banchan. Banchan. And uh, I know that folks that listen to, I think, the Memorial Day episode uh, that we did for Industry Focus, they know how much we love Banchan mm-hmm. uh, on the IF team and in editorial. Two of our interns, uh, Connor and Addie, have never had Banchan, the glorious double fried Korean chicken wings. It's a crime. It's a crime. It's a scandal. And so we are going to enlighten them today. Absolutely. I think that's how we can look at it. <laughs> yes. um, and today is also kind of a special occasion because we have a live studio audience. It's very exciting. We have John and Lisa, two listeners from Wisconsin. They're in town for a little bit, and they decided to stop by HQ and check uh, check out, hang out for a taping. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's 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 really awesome whenever anyone decides to come visit HQ. Yeah, so listeners, if you're ever in the area, let us know. Industryfocus at fool.com. We love having people cop, uh, come by, check us out while we're doing tapings. We also love it when people give us uh, ideas for shows. That's pretty nice. It makes our job a lot easier. Absolutely. Um, so, Michael, we are wrapping up Never Will I Ever Week. Um Tech is known for its high-flying IPOs. No. <laughs> uh, often these tech companies, I think, because they are so highly followed um, pre-IPO, you know, when they're private, you have all these billionaire unicorns. Um, there's a lot of fanfare. There's a lot of investor interest. There's a lot of consumer interest. A lot of times, these businesses are very consumer-facing, and so when they actually do start going public, it's just craziness. Well, and it's not just I think that they're consumer facing, but they're also you know usually claiming some sort of disruptiveness, right? And that when when you're thinking about investing, people are excited about the idea of like breaking an industry and creating something new, you know, getting rid of you know newspapers, replacing with the internet or something like that, right? And so and so this is that opportunity to do that with businesses that people can sort of vaguely understand and interface with. And I love covering IPOs. I do. I love doing those deep dives into company prospectuses, those S1s. Oh, yeah. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. But my never will I ever this week is never will I ever buy a stock within six months of its IPO. And I think that is a brilliant call for a number of reasons. It's it's a rule, actually, when, when you uh, said it to me before typing, I was like, oh, yeah, me too. <laughs> so, I'm, going, I'm on the Dylan Lewis train here. I appreciate that. That's why I had you on, because I knew I'd get some supporting <laughs> arguments. <laughs> A little a little group thing here in uh, industry focus on Friday, July fourteenth. Yes, on Friday, July fourteenth. Um, so, and at a glance at three companies that kind of start to paint a picture about why I feel this way. Uh, you look at the big IPOs in tech from last year. Line Corp down seventeen percent since they went public. The S and P five hundred is up thirteen percent since then. Nutanix down roughly forty five percent since uh, about the fall of twenty sixteen when it went public. S and P five hundred is up twelve percent since then. And Twilio, since IPOing in the summer of 2016, up 12%. The S&P 500 uh, up 20. And so, uh, two out of the th- two of those three are down from where they first started trading, and all three are underperforming the market pretty substantially. Pretty substantially. And you know, I think um, there's just so much pent up demand, and and you see shares soar with a lot of these IPOs so early on. People are just craving, you know, getting access to these companies. Because the hype is there, um, that it winds up blowing them up to these wildly unrealistic expectations. Well, it's one of those interesting things that, like, you know, Warren Buffett talks about how you should be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. I mean, when IPO season hits and when people are really talking about these IPOs, that, you know, you, I mean, there are IPOs that on their first day they triple, right? And people just get 
crazy greedy, excited about this possibility. And I think they often leave all logic aside. And that means that there's just crazy stuff happening, uh, particularly in those first few days, but also over those first six months in a lot of ways. And so, you know, I think thoughtful investors need to be fearful and 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 really very careful about thinking about um, entering um, entering into these companies so early, particularly given the timing aspect. And that is not to say that any of these companies are necessarily bad companies. Right. I actually I think Twilio is a very interesting business. Um, I've, I've been kind of watching it on the sidelines. It's, mm-hmm. it's a company that I'm very interested in, have not bought shares of, but I'm watching. But even if you look at a massively successful company, Facebook, um, the stock was down 30% a year out from its IPO. Yeah, they had a pretty tough first year. Yeah, they did. And you know, part of that is huge expectations built into the company. And so the core business metrics need to back up the valuation. And very often it doesn't early on, just because you have the kind of tumultuous nature of your first couple reporting quarters um, and the scrutiny of being public. And then also, I mean, Facebook specifically, there were all those concerns, remember, about the pivot to mobile yeah. and, and whether Facebook was going to be able to pull it off. Now we see this Hint, business. They did. <laughs> yeah, it's like 80% of right. their of their traffic is, is mobile and they are absolutely crushing it, um, you know, with mobile revenue and, and serving up stuff that people want. Mm-hmm. But that was a very legitimate concern for investors early on. So even in a success story there, even a year out, um, you know, the market wasn't really sold on what was going on with Facebook. So, my guidance for investors is looking at tech IPOs and kind of IPOs broadly, wait six months. I might even say a year. And I think there are a couple actual kind of core reasons for this, too. Um, the big one for me is the company decides when it goes public. That, that's one of the most important things you have to understand about the IPO process. Yeah. So, in a lot of ways, they are sort of timing the market for themselves, right? They're, simp- they're, they're saying, okay, um, here's a story we want to tell. The metrics are lining up with that story. Here's a great time to go public. And I mean, keep in mind, a company is very heavily incented to do this. Like the reason you go, you go public. The reason you you take on all the extra scrutiny and all that extra reporting is so you can unlock a bunch of cash. So why wouldn't you do that when you could unlock the most cash? Because you're te- you're able to to kind of tell the best possible story. Um, it makes a lot of sense from a business standpoint. What that means, though, is that. Retail investors who are hopping in early um, may be coming in when things look better than maybe long term they could be. Yeah, like IPOs are capital raising events. Right, that's the thing you have to remember. And you know, management's deciding when they're going to be selling these shares. And you might run into situations. I think Snap might be an example of this, um, where at the time of filing, you know, the business metrics maybe look as good as they're going to for quite some time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, with Snap and its property Snapchat, you know, the company's user base was kind of beginning to show signs of decelerating growth. I think they went right. from like 20% year-over-year growth in the be- or it's 20% sequential growth in like Q2 of 2016 to like 4% sequential growth in Q4 of 2016. So, they might have been kind of reading the tea leaves and saying, you know, I don't know that things are going to get too much stronger anytime soon. We haven't really turned on the ad monetization engine yet. We can sell a story of promise and potential. Let's raise capital now rather than risk, you know, the, the core business metrics deteriorating and then raising capital at you know a lower valuation down the road. Absolutely. I think one of the other um, key things to look at is um, that you only have but so much information to look at, kind of going going backward, right? So you know, the S one, you know, maybe they'll have a couple of years of data there, um, but um, you're not really able to tell a lot of kind of the long-term story in a way that you can about, say, you know, for example, like a Johnson and Johnson, which has been public for forever, 
Yeah, and the requiring the filing requirements are actually different if you are an emerging growth company, which mm-hmm. is I think less than a billion dollars in revenue over the trailing twelve months or the most recent fiscal year. I forget the exact categorization there, but um, you know, so so how uh, close to the IPO you have to file and some of the information that you have to file uh, will depend, and and that is meant to make it easier for smaller companies to go public, but that also can put investors at a little bit of a disadvantage. Right. Um, so that is something to kind of keep in mind. I think one of the things, particularly as foolish investors, that we want to see with companies that um, buying into an IPO early doesn't give you access to, is understanding how management handles the scrutiny of being public. Because I think that's such a big part of understanding general philosophy of a business, mm-hmm. and also how they're going to weather kind of you know tough times and not great business outcomes. Yeah, I mean for me. Um we did an episode a little while ago about sort of evaluating stocks, and actually we went through Facebook at that time. And one of my key steps whenever I'm evaluating a company is to hear how management talks about it, because they are closer to the business than anybody else, and they will help paint a picture um, that the numbers themselves can't do. You know, like you can always say, oh, you know, sure, revenue is this, and earnings are growing to this, but management can really give you the color of, well, there are some puts and takes here. Here's what happened this past quarter. Here's why we don't expect that to happen next quarter. Here are some one time tax charges. Here's exactly what they were. Here's why we think they were one term. And if you don't have that kind of background and that kind of depth of knowledge and expertise, you're operating at a real disadvantage uh, in terms of being able to really understand whether one company is better than another. And five months out from an IPO, you're only looking at one quarter's reports yeah. and one commentary. You know, yeah. from management. Maybe two if you're lucky. Maybe, but. but you know, odds are you're not really getting too many interactions with management. Right. And and I also want to see that management says, you know, nope, this is the long-term plan that we're sticking to. And if that's a vision that you bought into as an investor. Uh, you want to make sure that that's that, that's what they're going to do. Right. Um, you know that they are not going to kind of course correct uh, just because they're hitting some short-term headwinds and decide that they are going to do something radically different with the business because that's not what you bought into, right? Right, and uh, I mean the the measure of a management team is. is I think more what they do when they hit a snag than what they do when things are going well. It's it's in, in the same way the true measure of an investor is what they do when you know their entire portfolio is down fifteen percent, not when they've been sitting on multi-year gains like in like I don't know, let's say like like an eight-year bull market. <laughs> just for example. For example, <laughs> hypothetical. So, right, totally totally academic uh, conversation here, um, but that's what really tells you whether this is a management you can trust and whether it's a good management um, is is how they handled those those snags and those hurdles. And don't necessarily see that immediately. Yeah, it takes time. Yeah, and so again, bringing it back to this isn't a conversation. This conversation isn't say I wouldn't buy any of these stocks, sure. or, or that it's something where I'm like, you know what? No, nine months out, like absolutely not. It's just you want to see several quarters of results. You want to have a better sense of what's going on. Um, you just want as much information as you can possibly have, and maybe kind of move beyond that hype cycle. Yeah. So um, that is my never will I ever, Michael. I know that you have a slightly different one, also based on personal experience. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> yes. a shared experience. Well, between yeah, both of us. kind of a shared experience. And it's never will I ever buy a grocery store stock again. Which is to say that you have bought a grocery stock at one point. Yeah, it didn't go so well. Yeah, uh, and, and, me too. And, and, yeah. <laughs> Interestingly, we bought the same stock, and yeah. we were actually talking about this particular stock uh, when we were doing New Year's resolutions week uh, way back in January. And uh, the stock was Whole Foods, and um, you know I think we both had a, a thesis that made a lot of sense at the time about it, which was that 
um, you'd have a, a strong brand that enabled them to charge a premium, and they had a lot of growth, both same store and also, um, you know, in terms of store count. And that thesis largely fell apart over the last three years. And uh, very fortunately, um, Amazon. Uh, Came in and and bought up Whole Foods, so a lot of people um, recouped at least some of their losses. Maybe even made a gain. You and I had sold both of us before then, so we didn't, which is fine. Uh, there's, there's a separate lesson there. <laughs> yeah, we're not we're not better. Um, but um, I think when when thinking about grocery stores as a whole, uh, first off, I, I do recognize they are consumer goods companies, maybe not tech companies. But there's a tech angle here. Okay, we're gonna bring it around. We'll get there. Um, but you know. Grocery stores are low-margin businesses because they're so darn commoditized. I mean, sure, there there are tiers of stores, right? I mean, Harris Teeter and, and Wegmans um, operate in a different paradigm in a lot of ways than like Giant and Kroger and Food Lion. Um, and then you've got you know your, your true discounters like Aldi, but they're in competition with so many other businesses. Think uh, retail pharmacies like CVS and Walgreens. Uh, think dollar stores, big box stores like Target and Walmart. The warehouse clubs like Costco and uh, BJ's, you've just got a ton of competition, and that is is a good thing for consumers. It's a bad thing for margins. Yeah, it's really tough to make the numbers work, particularly when you can buy uh, you know a bunch of bananas or life cereal at most grocers, right? You right. know, it's kind of tough to charge any more for it than you know the place down the street is. Yeah, you can get a little bit on specialty products, right? Like a particularly nice cheese or something like that, but that's not where most of your volume is going to come from. It's going to come from stuff like milk, and. You mentioned that we were going to bring this around to tech. I'm going to try to do it here. All right, do it. Do it. Here we go. Here we go. Um, Turn so, the ship. So, so you talked about Amazon's acquisition of Whole Foods, mm-hmm. and um, you know, I do not think that the grocery business is going away anytime soon. No, um, it's particularly for things like milk. I think people are going to be happy to go to the store and actually grab things that that they need quickly. But um, if a, if a business is super low margin, and someone can come in and totally disrupt it by being more convenient. That's a red flag, yeah. <laughs> and so um, you know, just kind of keep that in mind as these tech companies continue to get into um, further afield businesses from whatever their core competencies are. Sure, I think I think that's one of the big lessons from the Amazon Whole Foods acquisition. Well, and and one of the key things to think about with like an Amazon or a uh, or a Blue Apron or some of these other companies that are operating in this space and and are frankly disrupting. I mean, Amazon Fresh, you know, Amazon Delivery, if they're able to really Win at that, then that could be enormous. Is that they have a footprint advantage? You know, they don't have to operate all of this really expensive retail space, um, and that gives them a cost advantage. If something's low margin and kind of commoditized, a low cost operator wins, and that could end up being somebody like an Amazon. Now, today, tomorrow, five years from now, hard to say. Um, and that's not to say that I think again. I would agree with you. I don't think grocery stores are going out of business. But there's a difference between surviving and prospering. Exactly, like when you're thinking about market beating returns. Right. Um, you know, we're in we're in the stock market because we you know we want to win, uh, we we want to make money, and uh, plenty of companies plot along and survive. Um, relatively few prosper, and I think that that's for me at least the kind of investing that I want to do. And and hopefully you're listening to the tech show because you do too. Yeah, and and one more point on that, I think you know for Amazon or any of these big tech companies to mm-hmm. offer. More products that roll people into a membership type option. Right. Um, it's peanuts for them, right? Like they are happy to offer groceries at super low margin because they already have, you know, logistics that are built out to work with all that fulfillment. Right. If it means that they get more people into their prime ecosystem, they're psyched about it. Right. And so um, if you're competing against super deep pocketed uh, competitors 
and it doesn't really cost much for them, and it's no skin off their nose to enter that market, uh, that's kind of dangerous. Yeah, incredibly. So, Michael, I, I have to ask you, in addition to these investing and personal finance Never Will I Evers, um, do you have a personal Never Will I Ever? Yeah, Never Will I Ever Grow a Man Bun. <laughs> grow a Man That is a personal jab. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I think it looked good on you. It would not look good on me. Um, I, I'll also say I, I will personally never um, run a marathon. Um, I played racquetball in college and messed up my knees. And while I've recovered nicely and you know am fully functional today, I'm not so great at the whole uh, high. Um, what's it called? High intensity. High training. intensity. Well, yeah, like high intensity workouts, high impact workouts. That's high what I was looking for. So running in general is just not in the cards for me. You know, in addition to financial health, it's very important to take care of your personal health. Absolutely. Um, Austin Morgan, man behind the glass. What about you? Any never will I ever's for our listeners? Never will I ever eat at a Waffle House after midnight. That's a good rule. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of things post midnight that are not good ideas. Waffle House is one of them. Waffle House is one of them. Yeah. Although one of the top five. Yeah. If you're not driving to the Waffle House, you know, then it might be good. You could maybe you could soak up some of whatever you ingested prior to the Waffle House. Yeah. I just hope everything at the Waffle House goes smoothly. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> right. Um, my never will I ever on a personal level is never will I ever let my passport expire. Ooh. That is that is one of my mom's uh, pieces of wisdom. Always have an active passport because you never know what opportunities are going to come up to go do some traveling, um, and you always want to be ready and able to do it. That's very wholesome. Yeah, I, it is wholesome, I right? Actually, I don't have a passport. Are you serious? Yeah. You I, should I, get on that, man. I know. I've, I've, there's been multiple times where I'm like, I'm going to get a passport, and I have like the photo and everything, and then just... Never got it. You know, getting over the kind of bureaucratic hump of making it happen is kind of tough. What what I found helped me was scheduling a trip and then saying, "Well, it's either the passport or I'm throwing thirteen hundred bucks away." That's well, a, that's a good way to solve that problem. Yeah, force yourself into a painful money loss if you don't do it. Michael Douglas and I have talked about accountability buddies for goals and uh, resolutions. Austin, I am happy to be your accountability buddy to getting your passport up to date and ready to roll. Well, it's not that it's not up to date. It's just it doesn't exist. Yeah, to, to, <laughs> I'm happy to make sure that it exists, <laughs> and then I will follow up to make sure that it's uh, up to date every year from now until you know whenever. This is your process of becoming an adult. You're you're a homeowner. I, I'm you a have homeowner, a dog. I have a dog. I just don't have a passport. Yeah. Well, hey, you know what? You know what? To be fair, two or three ain't bad. We're gonna check in on that in a little bit and see. But I will I will goad Austin Morgan into getting his passport. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, Michael, thank you so much for hopping on the show. I love how much we got to include Austin in this discussion. Yeah, this is exciting. Yeah. Um, anything else before I let you go? I think that's it. Thanks for having me. Can't wait for that bonchon. Me neither. Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or if you just want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus at pool.com. Or you can always tweet us at MF Industry Focus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, you can subscribe on iTunes or check out the pool's family of shows at pool.com slash podcasts. As always, people in the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin for all his work behind the glass. For Michael Douglas, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening. Cool.